It's hard to know what to do when wrong has been done to you. It's hard to know what to do, right? What the course forward is when you have been sinned against, when wrong has been done to you. I remember a difficult premarital counseling situation. Uh, Both the guy and the gal said that they were Christians, both members of the church where I pastor at. The gal even worked for the church as the church secretary. And in premarital counseling, the guy said that he thought and felt that the gal was spending too much time with one of their mutual friends, a non-Christian, who was in fact a bad influence on her, and at one point in time, his as him as well. And whenever he brought it up, instead of moving towards him in love, right, you would figure that that would be a natural thing to do, she would actually put up a fight. And this happened regularly, and given her obstinance, her hard-headedness, and her refusal to kind of soften, and given the fact that he knew something just wasn't quite right, I let them know, like, hey, you ought not feel any obligation to marry each other, right? Clearly, there are unresolved issues, like, you should just feel free to not marry if one of you guys choose to do so. And eventually, they ended up breaking up. But it was, of course, was, was hard He had loved her. He had given her his heart. And then at the same time, the guy struggled with bitterness because though she said she loved him, her love never materialized in action. And that friendship, that friendship over there between the guy, the the girl and the other guy, well, after the breakup, he came to me saying that he actually suspected that they were involved sexually. If he was right. Just put yourself in his situation. Think of the bitterness. Think of the confusion and the hurt, the betrayal, the embarrassment. And he came to me saying, after saying that he suspected this sexual immorality, he came wanting the pastors to do something. The difficult thing, though, was that his suspicion and claim, it didn't really have that much substance to it. So we want to care for both parties. You can't just go around, you know, launching these claims at people. So how exactly would you have counseled him? Of course, I knew that we are not in control of what other people think and what other people do. But as Christians, we are, in fact, responsible for our own faith in Jesus right now, right? How we deal with the situations that are right in front of us. So I said to him, even though it is hard and even though he felt betrayed even though he felt used that Christ still called him to want for her best to want for her what Christ wants for her that is Christ's likeness and if she was in sin that she would in fact repent of her sin and follow the Lord and that God actually wanted the same for him regarding him wanting the pastors to do something I told him that if she was sinning against God by carrying on this sinful relationship with a non-Christian, that it would show itself in her life. And God would, at some point in time, expose her and reveal her true character for many to see. In that difficult situation, he certainly made efforts to turn to Christ. He certainly made efforts to be faithful even in the bitterness and all of that, and her, for her, the gal, sure enough, eventually it came out that she was, in fact, in this unbiblical relationship, 
that she was sinning against God and sinning against many different people and had been the whole time that she was engaged to this guy. Her sinful actions had huge repercussions. Speaking of the personal, she broke so many people's trust, given all the people that she had lied to, including the pastor. She had lost her job, which meant that she lost her visa that kept her in that country. We're not talking about anybody here. I should have said that earlier. Speaking on the spiritual side of things, she shamed the name of Jesus among so many different people, the non-Christian, and then to others who knew. And we told her, in trying to counsel her, that she ought not have any confidence in her claim to know Jesus because she refused to repent of her sin. As 1 John 1 says, if you claim to have fellowship with the light but walk in darkness, the scripture says you lie and the truth is not in you. Unfortunately, our family moved back here to California in the middle of when the pastors were trying to help her turn from her sins to see that Christ is in fact better. But as far as I know, she never did. She never, she never apologized to any of those she knew she hurt. She was happy to choose her own sin over the Lord. And she also chose to run over a whole lot of people in the process. Though the guy found it so hard in the moment, he continued pressing on, living life as a faithful Christian, though difficult it was. And he was trusting that God would bring sins to light. Eventually, thank God, his bitterness had moved to something of feeling sorry for her. Not in a proud way, but actually in a way where he cared for her. He came to understand that actually she was, must have been so confused seeing a need to lie, seeing a need to betray the confidence and trust of so many around her, to use him and maybe even that other guy for her own gain. And most importantly, she refused to find salvation in Jesus. My point in all of this is that, once again, it is hard to know how to press on in godliness when such sin has been committed against you. Whether we can think of this as Christians as individuals or the church as a whole. But yet pressing on is exactly what we as Christians are called to do. Hoping not finally in a change of circumstance, but hoping in Christ. After all, the big picture of the Bible gives us is that the world's situation will continue to decline until Christ returns. What will help us all press on in Christ and towards Christ even when sinned against as we live in this sinful world well, friends, our passage this morning in 2 Timothy gives us an answer. Three things that will help us press on and in Christ. Three things that will help us press on and in Christ. If you're taking notes, here it is. Number one, know our times. Number two, know our response. And number three, trust in God to settle the issue. And, of course, I'll repeat those as we go along. Know our times, know our response, and trust in God to settle the issue. Let me invite you to turn with me to 2 Timothy. And we are in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. If you're sitting next to somebody who, who seems to be uh, opening the Bible for the first time, just volunteer yourself and help them get there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This letter is a letter written by Paul the Apostle around the mid-60s A.D. And he, there the Apostle Paul is in prison, and he's writing to a younger church planter his son in the faith named Timothy, and uh, Paul, and certainly Timothy, and the church there in the city of Ephesus. Paul is in Rome. Ephesus is very much to the east, <clears throat> a coastal city of modern-day Turkey. 
And uh, whether it was Paul in Rome or Timothy and the church in Ephesus, they were under stress. They were under pressure. The emperor Nero was rounding up Christians and killing them in the mid-60s A.D., blaming them for something that happened uh, in the city of Rome. Now, while Timothy was not in Rome, you know, again, he's in Ephesus, there was still, there was still some degree of pressure, you know, if your mentor is, is in jail facing his own death, right, there's going to be pressure for the other Christians. Not only was there external pressure, but there was also internal pressure. False teachers inside of the church, possibly working to lead some astray, they're definitely causing problems. And so Paul encourages Timothy to be strong in the strength of Christ. Fulfill your ministry. We saw earlier in the book that Timothy is to guard the good deposit of the gospel, that he's to find men who's going to guard the same and pass it on to others who will do the same. We saw, too, that he is encouraged to remember that Christ will build his church. How important is that in the face of persecution and internal pressures of false teachers? God would do it. So he encourages the church to faithfulness. Faithfulness in pursuing and preaching Christ in his righteousness in an unrighteous generation. And the church there is to be faithful, to press on, walking holy lives as God is holy. What is crucial to Timothy and the church's faithfulness and courage and their endurance, Paul tells them in our passage, number one, know your times. Number one, know your times. You can tell that in this passage, actually, let's go ahead and read the passage. Look there in verse one of chapter three. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now, point number one, know your times. You can tell that Paul here is like the commanding officer giving a debrief to his soldiers, debriefing the team. He helps them and helps us know the environment into which we parachute, so to speak. Or better yet, a better analogy, is the environment out of which we as God's people are being extracted. In some ways, Christ's mission to save was an extraction operation. As Paul says elsewhere, the church is being saved out of the domain of darkness and into, they're being brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. And so from verse one, we see that the church is up against great times of difficulty. Look at verse one, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Note the age or the time, note the time, the age that Timothy is set in, right? He sets him in the last days. This is an important biblical phrase, Old Testament and New Testament phrase, and refers to the age of the Messiah. 
the age of Christ, where God would begin to bring about the kingdom of God through the work of Jesus, and he would do so in a way that he had never done before, a work that he had promised would come about in the Messiah, and that now that Christ has arrived, it has begun. The messianic age and the messianic time where Christ's reign has been inaugurated and established, so it has begun, and where one day it will reach its fullest, its fullness. And the age of the last days starts with Christ's first, first coming, and then it goes all the way until Christ's second coming. If you want to look at some passages about the, you know, how uh, the Bible uses this phrase, you can look at 1 Timothy 4, 1, you can look at Hebrews 1, 2, you can look at Acts chapter 2, verse 17, and then there's just a whole bunch of different places you could look at. But thinking back to the extraction in relation to the last days, what we're up against, how the kingdom has started now, but will blossom to its fullness later. Our Savior Christ the King has already arrived, right? Savior has come. We know this because his reign has inaugurated. Even in his miracles that Jason speaks about as he preaches through the book of Luke, even in his miracles, right, when he's casting out demons, when he is healing the sick and then raising the dead, what is he doing, right? He's not only showing that he is the God-man who reigns over all, but what he's doing there is he's driving back evil. He's driving back the effects of sin. Not only is he driving back the effects of sin, but he's forgiving sin. He's undoing everything that came about through Adam and Eve's first sin. Even the proclaiming of forgiveness and then in his perfect and righteous life and then on his death on the cross as he bore the wrath that his people deserved. And then in his resurrection, he once for all kicked down the doors of death. He defeats the power of sin and he wins salvation for his people. And though he ascended into the heavens, as we know in the Gospels, he has gone to prepare a place for us. As in due time, he will welcome us to be with him forever. He has not left us alone, but instead has given us his very spirit that we might fight our spiritual warfare, that we might preach the gospel of his grace, where we are to represent Christ here on earth, loving God, loving one another, even our very own enemies, as we look forward to future and final deliverance at the king's return, right? Kingdom inaugurated, doors of hell kicked down, Satan is defeated on the cross and resurrection. Christ is gone, but he will return. Salvation has arrived, but full deliverance will come future. In the now, do we genuinely know salvation in Christ? Yes. Do we genuinely experience the benefits that come with this deliverance, like peace and joy and kindness and love for God and love for man? Yes. But then at the same time, will we still face difficulty in the extraction process in this age? There, too, the answer is yes. Verse 1 says, these are days of difficulty or troublesome times, as people will be more explicitly, more explicitly anti-Christ, anti-Christian, anti-gospel. That's how it differs from the Old Testament. Of course, in the Old Testament, people were rebelling against God as well. How is it different where it's that much more anti-Christian because Christ has arrived? And if God has so revealed in his kindness and grace who Jesus is, the Lord and Savior, the God-man, come to save man, and still man denies and rejects and crucifies. It is all the more anti-Christ, anti-Christian, anti-gospel. What will mark these difficult days? What will mark these difficult days? Look there at verses 2 to 5. He says there, or you look there at verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times. He's using the future because 
it is not only present, but of course it is future because we wait until Jesus comes. It is now, but it is also future. Think in between the two poles of Christ coming in his return. And then he explains four people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. And then he just goes on and then just go ahead and look down at the bottom of this list. At verse four. Look how he bookends the end of this first section of the, the list, though. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, we read the list earlier. It's a pretty long list, so we won't focus on every single one of these characteristics, but we're going to note some important features about people in these times. First is that they're given over to a distorted love. They're given over to a distorted love. It's a misdirected love. Loving themselves over God. Loving themselves over God. Notice this distorted and misdirected love is at the front of the list, right? Lovers of self, lovers of money. And then there in verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than or opposed to God. So there you see this misdirection. God's created people love are to love God over self, but these have flipped it around. The second thing here, everything in between those two lovers' description. Everything basically has to do with how that obscene love for self gets played out in this realm. We, we, he's just basically saying that all sinners have this obscene love of self. Not only does it affect our relationship with God, but then it affects us horizontally as well. In our relationships here on earth, this is what we choose to go after. And so we are proud, we're arrogant, abusive towards others, and on and on and on. And then third, third, people who walk in these ways, they actually follow after the devil. The Bible says. He's already talked about uh, the devil there in verse 26. These people there, the false teachers, they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What's fascinating in this list, uh, the word devil in the plural is basically right in the middle. That word slanderers, that word slanderers in verse 3. If you can think of like this list as, uh, you know, an A, B, A, they call it a, chi a chiastic structure. You know, if you're going to write poetry, you might mention this thing up here like, uh, Melanie is very beautiful. She is my wife. How lovely is Melanie, right? A, B, A. The B in the middle is this word in plural for devils. It's fascinating. So you got lovers of themselves, this twisted and distorted this distorted loves over God, and then you hear, have in this section here how that gets played out among man, and then you get this one thing right in the middle, and the focus is on the devil. It's also translated as slanders. Now, that is actually an accurate way to use that word. The devil himself is a slanderer. He is the liar. But the hint is clear enough. In the fact that these people slander, that is, they speak maliciously against other people, hating them, and everything else that they do, especially their misdirected, twisted love, they walk in the devil's footsteps. You think about Satan himself, right? He was an angel who rebelled, loving himself more than he loved God. He chose to live for himself, and since his rebellion, to deceiving and devouring others. And in these last days, our pastor says, people will give themselves to walking like him, loving themselves rather than God. Okay, so if you're visiting with us today, if you know yourself not to be a Christian, you might look at this list and just genuinely wonder, like genuinely wonder, it's a good question, why loving the self is such a big deal? 
Why is loving the self over God, over this Jesus Christ that you guys are talking about, why is that such a big deal? That is a great question, a natural question, given that so much of our culture tells us express yourself as if that is the ultimate good. And they never ask the question, right? Culture never asks, uh, gets us to ask the question, what if the heart is bad? Never tells us to do that. I mean, how come culture never tells us to remember when other people listened to their hearts and things went really horribly for you? Just think about how many families, how many wives, how many husbands, how many children have been abandoned simply because the one leaving the family wanted to be true to themselves, to listen to their hearts. How about the world leaders of this present generation? who are loud-mouthed, slanderous, possibly racist, or world leaders in the past who have decided to kill millions because, eh, that's just what I thought I should do. Or maybe the whole country who just says, hey, that's just what we think we should do. They conclude, that's what's best for me and my country and the world. Clearly, there is a right and wrong, if you're thinking about these situations objectively, clearly there is a right and wrong but that's not determined by individual wants and desires and what your own heart wants. Much of the world, though, is determined to tell us that it is a good thing. The thing of greatest value, the thing that we ought to act on is our individual wants and desires, regardless if they are sinful. From the Christian perspective, though, these things are certainly not of greatest value. In fact, it is when we love ourselves rather than loving God it's then that things go really wrong. When the creation loves itself or glorifies itself over the creator who made us, that's bad news. Think of this situation, which is the way that the Bible speaks of it. Think of God, the perfect father. I know many of us have messed up father. Authority figures, right? we get that. But just think of the perfect father who creates a people, who gives them life, and who provides for them everything they, ought, they, they need. He desires to teach them that they would walk in his ways, that they would walk in his own goodness and his own righteousness and his own love, and they are to trust him, the sovereign, all-wise, all-righteous, all-loving God. And, of course, learn from him. Now, if you are a parent or if you are an overseer of someone, a teacher or something like that, a guardian, if you had this desire that other people would walk like you, even not walk like you because you know you aren't so good at times, that desire that you have for other people to walk in the good, that actually reflects God towards his people. Isn't that really cool? I think that's really cool. And so in this situation, we are to learn all the things in relationship with God, where he gives us his heart, and we are to give him the same, the honor and the glory that he alone deserves but bad things happen when god's created people start thinking that we can do it better than god can that's what happens when with adam and eve and everybody since instead of loving and listening to god the father walking in his wonderful counsel in our pride and rebellion we choose to listen to ourselves we love ourselves thinking that we are all wise instead of trusting god and giving him our hearts as he has given us we begin to suspect him. Since he doesn't let me do whatever I want, whenever I want it, he must not love me. He must not be faithful. He must not be loving and good. 
which is absolutely silly, as any parent will tell you. And so we begin to love ourselves, thinking that we are the only ones to trust. Instead of learning to value what our righteous God values, we follow the desires after our own sinful hearts. We love ourselves, thinking we know what true pleasure is. And God is the cosmic party pooper. Instead of taking all of our cues from God about how we are to live life, in whose footsteps we are to walk, we decide to create our own path, following whatever we feel like following. And so we love ourselves, thinking that we are the greatest creators, the masters of our own destinies. From our perspective, from the Christian perspective, according to the Bible, that's exactly what happened. That's the world that we live in. That's the the very definition of sin, is that we redraw God's boundaries, which is something that we don't have the authority to do, and so we rebel against God. Imagine that, all of the cues that you friends need to do life, right? God has given us in his word, and we just choose to say, I don't think so. And so we are grasping after cues to live our own lives. We know the cues here. Jesus summed it up in the Old Testament law, summed up the whole Old Testament law, saying, love God and love man. Of course, that means submit, submit to God, love God, do what he says, be in perfect relationship with him. But instead, man has made life all about ourselves. Of course, then, we are proud. This is in the list there. This is in the list. Look there. Of course, we are arrogant. And since I am the all-important, we freely abuse others in speech, right? Because what do I care about you? We are treacherous. We are betrayers or traitors. That's what it means. We freely betray people's trust in us as opposed to be people that others can rely on. Next, we are reckless. We run people over to get what we want. Because why? We are swollen with conceit. We only care about ourselves. And then you look at verse 3. We are heartless. We are unappeasable. That is, we are unwilling to be reconciled with others. People want to reconcile with us. We don't really care. We speak poorly about whoever we want to. Since Adam and Eve, we are under the power of sin and the devil, and we walk in his ways. And then in following him, we all reject God's created order. We reject God's created order. That's his point when he talks there about the children being disobedient to their parents. We reject God's created order. His parents, you know, our parents are there to shepherd us where we are to live underneath them and trust them. Now, of course, parents and even children are sinful as well. But nevertheless, this disobedience is still called for. It means, it refers to being heartless. They give no care. They're absent of love towards God and parents. So according to Scripture, rejecting God and choosing ourselves is the very nature of sin. And of course, the cost of rebelling against God is that we will be judged by the king. Scripture speaks about God as father, also speaks about God as judge, God as king. But here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that though God had every right to judge man immediately and then eternally in hell because we had all sinned against him, instead God determined to recreate his people for his good purposes. He recreates his people for his good purposes, and he does this in Jesus Christ, ultimately. And so if you've ever read the Old Testament books, like Isaiah, for example, it's so clear that he is going to do something new in the Messiah, his chosen one. Where there was evil and injustice, especially evil and injustice done to God, he would send his Messiah to usher in 
His righteous rule, His justice. Through the Messiah, God would pour out His Spirit to renew the people who were so parched, who were thirsting, starving because of their sin. He would come to forgive their sin and make them one with Christ. And all this He does in Jesus. He brings in His own righteousness. He lives His righteous life, dies on the cross, bearing the wrath that His people deserved. On the cross, His people are declared to be righteous as they believe upon Him. They are justified even though they are still, we are still sinners. On the cross, we are forgiven of our sins where He promises in the book of Psalms that He will remember them no more and He restores our relationship to Him even though we were the ones to have rebelled. Through the Spirit, He writes His Word on our hearts and now the Spirit dwells in us. Talk about cues where we had rejected all of His cues. Now He gives us His Spirit where we desire to walk in His rights. For Christians, right, there is so much good news because this was us. This was us. Christian, you were hostile to God, but God has chosen by His free grace to make you at peace with Him through His own initiative, through His grace and mercy in Jesus. So Christian, if you're reading this, thinking that Paul is so proudly saying, all these people in the last days, they're going to be like this, they're going to be like that, as if he came from something better, as utterly false. He counted himself the chief of sinners. So you see how this is supposed to work here. I think for Christians, this is supposed to work to not bring us to pride and separation from the world, but actually to move us towards humility and thankfulness and holiness, given that this is exactly what Christ calls us to do. Now, some people think as they read this list here of all the things that these people are, are in the last days, you might be tempted to think that Is Christianity just about morality? Is it just about being good? Well, let me tell you, it certainly involves morals, which is, I think, an awesome thing to think about. But it is, first and foremost, Christianity is, first and foremost, about giving glory to God. It's about reconciliation to God. Christianity is no empty action. It is no religion. It is no no empty morality of things that we just do or don't do. And in some ways, did you notice in the passage there in verse 5, this is what the false teachers thought. Empty morality. This is stuff that people do. Verse 5 here, they had the appearance of godliness. They were doing all the same stuff that you do, Christian. Carrying your Bibles to church, coming here, maybe early, maybe even late. Singing, singing the songs to God, reading the scriptures, sitting and being quiet and shutting up for an hour and a half, listening to the preacher drone on. Yeah, they had the appearance of godliness. But what did they do? They don't give a rip about Christ. They deny. They choose to. They deny its power. Paul's talked about power before here in his book. They got the outward forms, taking their cues from the religious stuff, but they don't care about Christ, and so they reject Jesus and his power. They reject Christ and the power of the gospel. Right? See what they are rejecting there. And they're doing this, right? They're doing this. They're taking advantage. They're preying on vulnerable people spreading falsehoods about Jesus, spreading falsehoods about Christianity, all in these last days of difficulty. This is the age that we live in, church. And knowing this helps form our expectations, right? Knowing this helps form our expectations and inform our actions and our responses. For Timothy, what is he to do? He is to, we looked at this previously. Now, really, you can think of 2 Timothy, the whole entire book is talking about his response to living in this ungodly world, trying to press on and into Christ. We've looked at a whole lot of stuff for Timothy. We've already seen that he is to rightly handle the word of God. We've already seen that he is to preach the word or, 
or guard the gospel. We're going to see in future weeks that he is to preach the word in season and out of season. And in the passage above that we looked at last week, we know that the church is to be a pure church. If they are to flee sin, we are to pursue righteousness and all the good that comes with living underneath Christ the King, which we covered last week. Friends, in our passage today, Paul just continues that line of thought, okay? He's just continuing that line of thought regarding the church's response towards these false teachers specifically. This brings us to point number two. Point number two, given the times, what then is the Christian's response? What then is the Christian's response and the church's response? He says there in 5b. Well, the second half of five. He just says, avoid such people. Avoid such people. Now, this might seem a little stark, avoid such people, but keep in mind what he isn't saying. He's not saying go and kill them. He's not saying go and, you know, push them out of the city by force. He's not saying exile them. All he's saying is avoid them. If any are given over to sinful anger and bitterness, wanting to return evil for evil, he just doesn't give that option. He just says, avoid them. It's the same concept that we looked at in last week's verses where he says that the church is to cleanse itself, cleanse itself from false teachers and false teaching. And it is the false teachers in the church or the false livers, those who claim to be of Christ, but they live falsely. It's this false teachers that he has in mind when he says, avoid them false teachers, and all, the other, all those other categories, but specifically the false teachers. Verse 6, for among them, among these people, are those who creep in and lead people astray. Now, this call to avoid these folks may seem pretty self-explanatory, right? In our world, if you're going to go, let's say, for example, develop friendships, right? Parents might say, well, hey, you know, I know you're not a Christian, but you better you might not you might want to watch out for who you get involved with. You might want to watch out who you make friends with. In the business world too, you're going to launch a business, you're thinking about who to have a partner with, you might say like, "Hey, you know, you might want to watch out for who you get in business with." Right? We all understand this. We all understand Christian non-Christian that we should it's better off to avoid certain others and certain, uh, more than others. Um, but let's think about this avoid them from a Christian biblical perspective. Christian biblical perspective. When he says avoid them, I don't think he means that you Christians are to never interact with people like this. Why do I think, those, think this? Turn over to 1 Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. Just turn left a few books, and you'll get to 1 Corinthians. Now, we cited this verse last week. In this situation, there are those who are... Oh, there is one who is living in sexual immorality. First Corinthians chapter 5. While you guys flip there, can somebody tell me the time? My watch and that clock are different. Thanks. Okay. Um, First Corinthians 5, right? There's a situation where someone in the church is, having, is in, involved in sexual immorality, right? And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. So the non-Christian world, they look over there and they say, what? You guys are Christians? Like, we wouldn't even tolerate that. It says a man has his father's wife. Their scholars think that he's, ta- he's referring to the, the stepmother here. The son is engaged in sexual immorality with the stepmother. And the church is tolerating it. They're, call- they're going around calling this man brother when they should have disciplined him. But they're like, hey, you know, we're all brothers in Jesus Christ here. You don't need to repent of your sin or that's the implication. Now, what does he say there in verse 9? He's already told them in verse 5, you know, the Basically, purge this man from among you, remove him from your church roles, 
Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Well, look what he says there. He says, not at all meaning, let me clarify that, guys, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. You see, you see what his, his uh, assumption is. He says, that wouldn't make any sense. How are you going to live lives? You, we need, we, in the nor- normal course of the day, as you probably just go about your normal day, you're going to be interacting with these people, and that's totally normal. But then he says there in verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone, now get this, who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He goes on, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. He says, don't worry about those outsiders. Judge the inside, purge the evil person from among you. I find this passage actually really informative, right? We can't go out of the world. So who exactly does he tell them to avoid? It's the person who bears the name brother or Christian, but who commits these acts of sin and refuses to repent. This is someone who goes by the name of Christian, but who clearly doesn't choose Christ. They're not departing from iniquity, as Paul refers to earlier in the book of 2 Timothy. So remember, friends, Timothy and the church, they're still wrestling with problems in the church. They're false teachers in the church. As referred to earlier, there's two men, particularly Hymenaeus and then a guy named Philetus. And it was uh, Timothy and Paul and the church, presumably, had already disciplined Hymenaeus, but it wasn't too long ago. Philetus, who knows, this guy might still have been in the church. And that's not the only issue where there's issues in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, there were some widows in the church who were struggling with certain sins. Maybe it wasn't too clear if they were going to choose godliness or not. And so for those who choose not to choose Christ, sounds a little complicated, but for those who reject Jesus, but who go by the name of Christian, they say, no way. You say, avoid them, avoid them. They're not true Christians. Okay, so... Let's say the church moves to excommunicate somebody. That is, remove them from the doors. As I mentioned last time, it doesn't mean that we're going to tell that person to never come back to church again. Obviously, there are some circumstances, like if our, if our safety is at threat, then we get the, the law involved. That's normal. But in general uh, course of excommunication, we still want the person hearing the word of God where the spirit moves and calls people to repent of their sin. So let's say we, we discipline somebody. How are we to act? Are we supposed to cut off contact with them? Now, we haven't done this too much as a church, thank God, but we have done this. Um, does it mean that we are to cut off contact with them? You may wonder, as it says, it says pretty clear, like it says, avoid them. Like, how clear can it get? Verse Corinthians 5 says, don't even, t- don't even eat with such a one. Well, regarding the Corinthians passage, I don't think he's saying, look, guys, make sure you don't ever put food in your mouth at the same time as that person. That's the bad thing, right? That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, make sure you don't eat at the same time as somebody else. Here, when he's talking about eating, it implies this fellowship. It implies this oneness. I take don't even eat with such a one to mean don't do life with a person in a way that implies that their unrepentant sin is actually okay with Jesus. Right? You could go to a meeting with someone who's living in sin and be like, hey, what's up, bro? Like, how's life going? Like, hey, things are good. And you you, you never bring up that person's sin and, and where they are with Jesus, like something's wrong there with both of those people. The way that we are supposed to interact with those who we have disciplined, if ever the course may be, 
is that we're actually supposed to interact with them, but over the most important things. We love and care for them, addressing the very issue that is wrong, that is calling them to repent of their sins, bringing up the thing that might seem difficult and awkward, but friends, that's actually the way that we go about loving them. So keep that in mind. While, while we are called to exercise church discipline, for those we may discipline, it does not mean don't ever talk to them. We want to care. We want to love them. And we do this by bringing up the issue. Remember Paul's words here. If you get a little confused, like, what does it mean? Avoid. Remember, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. Paul expects us to deal with non-Christians. He expects us to deal with idolaters in the course of life and to evangelize them. That's a way that we're going to them right he says the same thing in Romans like we're supposed to love our enemies like how do you love them if we're so busy separating ourselves from them it's not what Christians are called to do we're not called to separate ourselves as if we are monks living in this last age these last days okay so when it comes to avoid them here I think it's just sort of a summary for exercise church discipline there okay so for the church no doubt they were to take action as the false teachers were claiming and teaching about a Jesus It was just a false Jesus. And they were aggressively evangelizing others, at least those in the community, probably evangelizing others in the church about their false teaching. Look at at the way that they go about this. They do this in this sneaky, conniving way that serves themselves, right? They creep and they capture the vulnerable. You're meant to think here that these guys are sneaky. They're creepy, as my kids love to describe (laughs) some people. Um, But these guys are legitimately creepy, It speaks to their intention. And then look at their mission. They sneak in and they capture others. And this phrase here captures like they're grabbing prisoners of war and leading them away. That's what they do. And we have to understand here that there are people who have this ill intent today. There are people, thankfully I don't know anybody here. There are people though who have this ill intent towards God's people. Preying on the vulnerable. In this case, Paul has in mind particular women he has in mind particular women the translation there is weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions these are women guilty or you know they feel guilt for their sin and then they struggle with desires they're lured away now he is not saying that women across the board are weak that's not what he's saying nor is he saying that women alone are the ones who struggle with desires Remember, right, he has in mind certain women. We're not going to get into the Greek and whatnot, but the Greek word there for uh, women, he uses a specific term there. These are women who are, once again, burdened and guilty for their sins and given over to their passions. Now, they're perfect targets, perfect targets. Emotionally, right, they're burdened. Perhaps they're willing to do anything to get rid of their sin. You just tell me something to do, right? Just give me something to do so I no longer can feel guilty. So it's a works-based salvation, maybe. Not only that, though, but they're led by desire. They're given to acting upon these sinful desires. Perhaps that's been their past. Maybe they're in the process of learning to stop or they know it's wrong. And then in their intellectual life, it says these women, I previously thought in reading this that uh, this was referring to the false teachers, but it's actually referring to the women. These women crave something new, always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. This is a condemnation both for the false teachers but also for this specific group of women. You can see false teachers are in danger. Imagine if someone was targeting people in church. Your family, your friends, the young Christians, baby Christians who are so burdened by their guilt, learning to quit their desires, 
and emotionally, they're, they're, and intellectually, they're learning to be based in the truth. And keep in mind, the first Timothy chapter 6, verses 5 to 10, we know that these false teachers, they, they claim godliness. They have the outward form as well, it says there, but it's a, it's a means of great gain. They want the outward appearance so that they can get money. For Timothy and others, this right is a call to protect the church, guarding the gospel. They protect the church by rightly handling the word of truth. That's the main part of what it looks like for the teachers to continue and fulfill their ministry. But the church, too, has a ministry, a ministry of holiness. As they live their lives in the gospel, they are to display the God's glory in the gospel to the world. That's what they're called to do, even in the face of those who want to take advantage of people in the church. Now, thinking back to my friend here who felt taken advantage of, who felt used, maybe you here today feel up against this same type of stuff where people definitely want to use you somehow. This is difficult. It's difficult to know the course forward here. And then in relation to these false teachers, you know, the fact that there were some who wanted to get rich off the church and to fill their pockets of money or with the money of the vulnerable. Friends, I hope you have some degree of righteous anger in this situation. For those who want to prey on the vulnerable, Thinking of sinful anger, I hope you don't struggle with this, but many of us still do as we wrestle with sin still. You can imagine if people were praying once again on the vulnerable of your family, your Christian family, you might once again want to return evil for evil. But even if you want to do something to expose them, something, so that everybody knows the truth about them, and here Paul encourages them to avoid them while, point number three, avoid them, Here's point number three, while trusting in God to settle the issue. Avoid them, that was point number two. Point number three, while trusting in God to settle the issue. You look here in verses eight and nine. Paul basically encourages Timothy, as I summarize it, to trust God to settle the issue. He is sovereign, and in his sovereign providence, he's going to work it out. And as he does this, he compares Timothy's situation with another situation, a situation from the Old Testament where people had opposed Moses. You see the comparison there. Oh, I'm in 1 Corinthians. Turn back. If you are in 1 Corinthians, turn back to 2 Timothy. You see this comparison, right? Verse 8, Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, that is these false teachers who creep and capture, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Jonas and Jambres, what did they oppose? This comes out of Exodus chapters 7 and 8. Now, there, the names, these two names, Jonas and Jambres, are not mentioned in Exodus, but Jewish tradition and Jewish writings outside of the Old Testament actually list these names. And it is these men who challenged and opposed Moses, God's messenger. Right, so in the Exodus, God tells Moses and Aaron, I want you to go, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Now, Pharaoh, he was, he was considered a god, a god amongst the pantheon, all the different gods. Pharaoh was one of them, right? But so he didn't, what does he care about Yahweh, the Lord? He's not having it. He doesn't care what Moses says or what Aaron says or what this God Yahweh says. As the account of Exodus goes on, God says, okay, look, as you go, if Pharaoh doesn't let you go, I want you to work miracles right in front of him. Moses and Aaron, they go and do this, right? Moses, uh, Pharaoh doesn't care, so okay, 
uh, God tells Moses and Aaron to throw down Aaron's staff, turns into a snake. And that's what happens. And Pharaoh, he says, whatever, I'm going to go get my magicians. My magicians somehow in the dark arts, they, they manage to do the same. We don't know if it's like by appearance or real. Don't know. But the staff turns into a snake. Next one, river into blood. Moses and Aaron, go, go and turn the river into blood. Pharaoh thinks that he has God matched again, calls up his magicians. Somehow they're able to do the same, whether by sleight of hand or they trick people, whether it was real blood, not too sure. But Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder, and as it does, so God's plagues become more severe and more severe. And then the magicians can't do it. They are proven to be impotent. And eventually, in Exodus, they are brought to acknowledge that what has been going on is the hand of Yahweh. Now, here's the deal. Did it appear for a moment that they had some sort of ability? Maybe just for a moment there? Sure. But was it lasting? The answer is no. You see how that's to encourage Timothy there? Just as Jonas and Jambres failed and their folly was plain to all, so it will be with these false teachers. Might it appear to some that these false teachers, of the, the ones I mentioned earlier, Hymenaeus, Philetus, have something, something of the appearance of godliness, especially as some people are drawn away to them or as they want to build their own so-called church in the city of Ephesus? Maybe, but will it last? The answer is no. It teaches us that we are not in control, once again, of what they are doing as they evangelize in, their mar- in the marketplace in Ephesus. We're also not responsible for how people respond but what we are responsible for is what god has called us to be and to do he calls pastors to preach and teach the gospel to rightly handle the word of god and to guard the gospel and to pass it on he calls all of us as christians to live holy lives in the gospel fleeing sin fighting for our own purity as a church and to remain faithful to jesus and in living in accordance with the gospel we preach we put it on display the power of the gospel again and again in truth and in the power of the gospel that in Christ there is power to save. And for the false teachers, according to his will, God will in fact expose them. They will not get very far and their folly will be plain to all. Just as we trust in Christ to bring final salvation and that encourages us to press on, So we trust that in Christ all sins will be brought to light and that God will himself set the record straight once and for all. This is an encouragement to press on in faithfulness and in holiness to everybody for the Christian because we know according to God, according to his word, what is good and right, doing what God has called us to do and trusting that he will do what he says he will do. This is what Paul does in 2 Timothy 4.14. Look over to 4.14. Look at how Paul responds to the wrong that was done to him. He says there, Alexander, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. He refers to the same Alexander in 1 Timothy. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. But what does he say there? The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul was faithful to do what he was called to do. That is, he disciplined Hymenaeus and Alexander. And even then, as he sits in a prison cell in Rome, as he's writing this letter, awaiting what would be Roman beheading, he's still able to trust that the Lord would settle accounts. So Christians today, if you are worried 
about your own family members being led astray. Maybe they've given into what is so popular today, that is the prosperity gospel, as opposed to the true gospel. Friends, this is an encouragement, an encouragement to trust God that he will, in fact, settle accounts. There are many today who want to fill the pockets with the money of the poor and the vulnerable, but they will not get very far. God will settle accounts. If you're visiting with us and know yourself to be a non-Christian, I'm certainly not equating you with these false teachers here who want to line pockets with the money of the poor. But friends, know too that your sin also will be brought to light. The question is, how will you stand before a holy God? The wonderful news about the gospel is that you can stand righteous in Christ if you would turn from your sins and believe on Him. If you would love God over loving yourselves. That you would love Jesus over loving yourselves. As Jesus summarized in the gospel, the whole law is summarized in love God and love one another. Of course, all of that implies submitting yourself to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Friend, repent of your sins and you will be saved. Even though we sin, yet God holds out forgiveness to all who come to him. Praise God for that good news. Thinking back to the introduction for my friend and for us all, the fact that God will settle the issue gives freedom from anxiety, freedom from bitterness. Knowing the gospel, it also moves us actually to love those even who are our enemies and who intend to do us harm. It enables us to follow Jesus' words, which is to pray for those. Pray for those who are against us. This gives us a confidence as well, knowing that God will settle the issue to press on and press into Christ as we fulfill our ministries. Might we take hits in God's extraction plan as we are in these last days? The answer clearly is yes. If you look there, these are men who are corrupted in mind. That is, they don't think well. We know this comes from sin. It affects all of our minds. We read Romans chapter 1. It speaks about the corruption of mind that happens when we reject God. And then they are disqualified regarding the faith. That is, they don't stand the test. They don't last. They give up. And instead instead of following, they actually turn against the church. Paul says clearly that men corrupted of mind and dead men disqualified regarding the faith will actually begin to attack the church. But this ought not dampen our hope or our courage as we faithfully follow Jesus. Why is that? Because we are to know our times. This is in the Bible. We are to know our response. Protect the gospel. Preach it. Live holy lives. Let's get on with life. And we are to trust in God to settle the issue and deliver us once and for all. As Paul concludes the letter, look at Paul's confidence that he has in the Lord in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. Go ahead and look there. He says there, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. He still trusts in God. Still trusts in God while moving forward and pressing on and pressing into Jesus Christ for his glory. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this reminder. It's clear we live in a sinful and fallen world. 
where we experience the effects of the fall in our bodies and in, even in our own selves as we sin against one another. Lord, we know that we live in the last days. Lord, we pray that knowing this and being reminded of all these, the list here, we pray, Lord, that we as Christians would be moved to humility, that we would understand that we were of them. But by your grace and according to your steadfast love, you saved us. We pray, Lord, that as we come in contact with folks who are living this way, as I'm sure many of us know friends that are like this, we pray, Lord, that we would seek to identify with them <clears throat> and call them to turn from their sins. We pray, Lord, that we would share with them how we like this, but how by your grace you have changed us by your Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would not only help us move us towards humility, but, Lord, at the same time, you would help move us towards holiness. We pray, God, that we would know that where we once identified with walking in the ways of the evil one, now we pray, Lord, that we would know so much more and identify with the Lord of holiness, the Lord of purity and righteousness. And we would so love you, you and your life and the life of a Christian, the life in the church, that we would so desire to run and to flee from these types of things knowing exactly what you have saved us from and knowing what you desire and knowing who you are Lord, we pray for us as a church give us wisdom as we learn how to walk in holiness and follow your commands give us wisdom too as we learn to handle the word of god make us men and women of the word we ask that you would root us in the word such that when we might face times of false teaching and false teachers, we would so clearly and easily be able to go back to the Word of God to see what it has to say about all things concerning life and doctrine and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.